You're listening to San Antonio Public Library's podcast, Tuned In. This podcast is made possible through the generosity of the San Antonio Public Library Foundation. Our sound engineer is Dan Garcia. Show notes for this episode and other episodes can be found at guides.mysapl.org slash SAPL tuned in. Okay, everyone. Hey, how's everyone doing today? This is Edward from the Tuned In Podcast team from the San Antonio Public Library. And today we have Dan Garcia, Raquel Reyes. Hello. And we're going to do part two of our podcast series with Dr. Reggie Scott Young. How are you doing today, Dr. Young? I'm great. Thanks for helping me. Awesome. Awesome. Today we want to talk about a little bit more dive into the Bluesville and give us a little bit more interpretation and in how you evolve that into your writings. Could you give us a little sample of that? Sure. Was uh, some poems for me? Yes, sir. Please. Okay. I'm going to read. Um, these are poems I wrote before I studied poetry in grad school. And I was a community poet in Chicago on the west side of the city. And people, uh, I think I've discussed this before on the previous podcast, that the uh, south side was famous. It was Bronzeville because of um, the poet Gwendolyn Brooks, who was unofficially the uh, one of the first poet laureates of the United States. Oh, wow. And uh, she wrote, uh, her first book was called A Street in Bronzeville. Well, Bronzeville was uh, a much longer established African-American community mm-hmm. in Chicago before uh, World War II, product of the Great Migration. The West Side was settled after World War II largely by African-Americans. So we were like the uh, uh, poor step siblings of uh, our <laughs> south side uh, uh, brethren and sisters and okay. such. Okay. And so um, uh, we lacked the identity that the south side had. Mm. And when I started writing, I just kind of made the analogy that at the south side is Bronzeville, we must be Bluesville because people in my neighborhood, even though my uh, I was born in Kentucky, they were largely from the Delta and right. mm-hmm. Mississippi. My father's from the Arkansas Delta. And um, on every block you had someone who played blues Sundays oh. or Saturday night. And uh, uh, there were ma- million clubs. You had people like uh, uh, Muddy Waters who play on the on the west side, even though he played on the south side too, but mm-hmm. people of that nature who lived in the community. And even though many of us were not into blues music, it was mm-hmm. era of soul, R&B and such that uh, I saw some value in, in the blues as a metaphor for our mm-hmm. community. Right. And so I started writing Bluesville poems. And here's one called The Bluesville Boogie that kind of plays off of uh, a Langston Hughes poem and Langston Hughes style, the Bluesville Boogie. If you ever write a Bluesville, never let me know unless you alter your conceptions. Is a rose always a rose? Till your children in the morning ask them if they've heard their inheritance from our dream is still deferred. And then Langston uses a famous poem, Harlem. He says, mm-hmm. uh, um, it talks about... Uh, was a dream deferred, uh, uh, a raisin and sun, more mm-hmm. or less. Uh, uh, and finally, the last line was, or does it explode? And so uh, kind of played with that. Uh, one other poem, uh, a little bit longer, but it's a poem called Crimes in Bluesville. Crime in Bluesville, 
and um, it's around about an incident of fire that happened in the neighborhood. And uh, I notice in San Antonio, when it gets cold, mm-hmm. it's not unusual for house fires because right. of people taking desperate uh, measures to try mm-hmm. to stay warm. So this is crime in Bluesville. On the west side, no one complains about the heat. There isn't any. But folks do be trying to grab a little warmth. People naturally don't want to freeze, but sometimes that's a little more than they can afford. Sometimes we light the oven, those of us with gas, or turn on an old electric heater after running an extension cord next door. We even burn old wooden chairs in the tub or bring a garbage can in and let it be our fireplace. We know not to relax into comfort in the winter of the night. We might get drowsy and go to sleep. Too often we are the burning story in the morning news. And so those are just a couple of the uh, early mm-hmm. Bluesville poems I used to uh, write before I got uh, edumacated and started <laughs> <laughs> down a kind of different track, although I still uh, write, uh, use Bluesville as a theme or a metaphor at times mm-hmm. in, in my poems. Okay. So let me ask you this. Bluesville and, and Bronzeville, were there any – differences between the south side and the west side of Chicago that you saw coming up in the artistic style and just the neighborhoods or what was the biggest difference between south side and west side back then? I think it's just that we were rivals. Uh, It's kind of like tribal rivals. I met a a woman in a coffee shop, I guess it was uh, just Sunday, who had Chicago on her shirt, and mm-hmm. the barista said, well, he's from Chicago, too. And I said, well, where are you from? And she <laughs> said, the west side. And I said, well, I grew up on the uh, – she said, the south side. And I said, I grew up on the west side. And she mm-hmm. said, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and so even though it's funny to us today that mm-hmm. uh, we recognize that that rivalry between high schools mm-hmm. and just – Individuals trying to get on uh, Don Cornelius's soul train, <laughs> things like that, uh, that it uh, used to exist and doesn't exist the same way today, I don't think. You know, it, it's very ironic that you mentioned that because I'm from San Antonio. I've been there my lifetime. And one of the things when you meet a new person that you've never before, what high school did you go to? So that pretty much tells you what side of town they're from, you know, their, how their socioeconomic status was back in high school. So it gives you an idea of what kind of person you're talking to. And that's, that seems like the same thing with the south side and the west side. Right. Definitely. Definitely. That's awesome. That's, that's very interesting. How it, it just, it's universal. Yeah. It's truly definitely. universal. Well, I think even, okay, in San Antonio, I notice, uh, differences in more recent uh, citizens from Mexico mm-hmm. or South Central America as opposed to those who've been here a few generations going back in time to people claim that their family was here you mm-hmm. know, uh, during time of the Alamo. Mm-hmm. And there are class differences and other kinds of differences in terms of w- when you came here and right. where you live, right? right? where you live. Very, very Definitely. true. Definitely. Very true. I just wonder if um, if that is truly universal in different cities. It all is. Over, um, it, it is. is. Um, I'm, I'm not a San Antonian. I'm actually from the Rio Grande Valley. And we also have 
Oh, you went to Edinburgh High School. You were, you know, a little more uppity. <laughs> then we were over here in across the street from a cattle barren where they sell cows and chickens and pigs and stuff. So, yeah, we were not as cool as the other side of town. So, yeah, it is universal. I mean, it, that's four hours south of here. So I think it's just something that happens everywhere. It does. If you go back in time and you look at other immigrant populations, the uh, uh, long-standing Irish uh, in relationship to newest, mm-hmm. newer Irish immigrants moving into a city, uh, any ethnic group, I, I believe, that uh, instead of embracing the newcomers and helping them along, it's like, no, you get over right. there. Right, right. right. Now, there's always that division, always that division in identification somehow. Always be able to identify from those mm, things. Definitely. So in Bluesville, I read some of the poems, and you, you identify how some of the characters or the or the, the people in, of interest in the poems, how they go through different, I want to say, circumstances of a racism, uh, gentrification, mm-hmm. and things of that nature. How do you try to explore that more with your poems? Well, today it's more focused on San Antonio because I'm in San Antonio, right. and it's something we see in a number of neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, um, well, f- I should say that a project I'm working on, I received an individual artist grant. It's called um, uh, Searching for Robert Johnson at the Alamo Dome. And Robert Johnson, I think we discussed this uh, previously, recorded his uh, first records here in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. His other recording session, one of two during his lifetime, was in Dallas. Well, during that time, the east side was downtown downtown proper Mm -hmm. and so places like the uh, cameo theater was an african-american institution Mm -hmm. and where the alamo is today people live that was the east side that was african-american community Mm -hmm. and like in so many cities when interstate highways were built through cities they plowed through black and brown communities and basically disrupted destroyed many of them Mm -hmm. And so uh, in Denver Heights, for example, mm-hmm. that um, uh, it's really changing and the property values have increased in taxes. There was mm-hmm. a story on the news, a woman had a home, her taxes, uh, well, it was assessed for $80,000, mm-hmm. and then the next year it was 216000 oh, wow. And how's she going to pay the taxes? taxes yeah. So she has obviously has to leave, and someone comes in, they uh, rehab yeah. or flip, and it becomes you know a house that uh, people who are uh, longtime residents can no longer afford. For, yeah. People right. in those neighborhoods. It's unfortunate. Right. And so yes, it's, it's very true because again, I grew up in San Antonio and I went to Breckenridge and Denver Heights is a part that feeds Breckenridge. So a lot of my friends stayed in Denver Heights back then. King William also, King William feels, uh, feeds Breckenridge. And then, you know, there were, there were nice houses, but now, wow, it's like the whole neighborhood is just a million dollar houses and like, well, mm-hmm. my buddy just stayed in the house there, but he doesn't stay anymore because over the, 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 the time, their parents couldn't afford to pay the taxes, things right. of that nature. So it just, it's interesting how, Time, location, changes the dynamics of a neighborhood, and it's just it it just evolves and it goes mm-hmm. from 
people from, from downtown, they go out to the suburbs, then they come back from the suburbs to downtown. It's mm-hmm. just a different migration of different people. They just like a, on a two-way street. They just go, one comes in, the other goes out. One goes in, the other goes out. And they're right there causing an influx of property taxes or gentrification, as you may say, in my opinion. Right. Well, I think it's important to keep in mind that there was such a thing as white flight. Mm-hmm. Uh, Raising in the sun to play mm-hmm. was about white flight in that sense that if this family, the younger family, moves into our neighborhood, we're all going to have to leave, so we have to keep them out. Mm-hmm. So in the 60s and 70s, maybe the late 50s, when interstates were built, it allowed greater access from the suburbs right. to the city. Right. So if you go back and look at the old TV programs, on I don't know if TV land cable still exists, but, <laughs> you know, Dennis the Menace, My Three mm-hmm. Sons, all of those are basically suburban families. Mm-hmm. But then they eventually realized, first of all, traffic became bad. Mm-hmm. Their houses were not as well built as the houses, the old houses in the city. And um, it it made no sense that I'm driving an hour, 90 minutes to get to work. I could work five, ten minutes from work. So they wanted to come back in and Mm -hmm. reclaim that territory. The result is uh, displacement. Mm -hmm. So when you go in neighborhoods and you find unhoused people, homeless people, mm-hmm. They're people who are longtime residents often right. who have no other place to go, but they don't want to go anywhere because this is the, the place in the world that they know. Right. right. And so they hold on to it even mm-hmm. if it's living out of a shopping car. Right. And we get mad about these people being in our pristine neighborhood. Mm. But uh, when it was their neighborhood to begin with. Exactly. Right. right. Their family's neighborhood and just that, yeah, their family's mm-hmm. neighborhood, family generation, generational house, and now it's not mine anymore. So why would you leave that? Because that's all you know. Right. So that's that's a very good point. And that's, that's one of the aspects I've, I've read in some of the poems out gentrification and just uh, you being a new face is the wrong face when it comes to those things of, you know, I want to keep that out of my neighborhood. I want to keep my neighborhood the way it is mm-hmm. because once we do let someone new in, that's not one of us. It's going to bring down our property value. It's going to change things. It's going to introduce crime and just those stereotypical things that people associate with people of color sometimes. Right. That's, that's right. And I, I, I've been afraid. Uh, I've had to ask myself, am I on the other side of this line now? Because right. I'm a former educator and I moved into a working class Mexican-American community. Right. And... Um, my house probably uh, is, costs more than many of the others in the neighborhood. Right. Uh, so do people view me this way? Am I mm-hmm. the, now the uh, the enemy? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but on the other hand, I try to connect with neighbors. I have mm-hmm. an older neighbor across the street, and she has trouble taking her uh, bins to the to the curb and you know I I help people I try to get involved I put a little free library in front of my house Uh, try to do things of that nature um, organize 
literary events in mm-hmm. that neighborhood or uh, a place like the Carver Library right. on the east side okay. to try to give back. So I've never forgotten what it means to be a community right. poet. And so I'm more, I identify more with writing for uh, and, and in the midst of people, uh, I, I don't know the best words, word to describe them, but working class, regular, everyday right. citizens mm-hmm. who are not wealthy. Right. right. Um, as opposed to uh, trying to hang out at uh, Blue Star and, and more fluent places of that right. nature and mix in, or what I didn't know the term, but uh, uh, I guess you call it South Austin. Which is, you know, North San uh, San Antonio, which is often uh, more affluent than the South Side and East Side. And I think that's a great segue when you mentioned how you do community events and you mentioned the Carver Library because Mm -hmm. now you're sponsoring and you're pretty much the creator of a Prudence L. Curry Writer Series that's going to take place at the Carver Library from, I started last month? Started just this uh, Sunday with uh, Naomi uh, Shihab Nye and um, uh, Carrie Carter. And it was interesting reading because we know her as a poet. She served as a young poet laureate of the United States of America. Carrie's a newspaper columnist and it's like is he going to read? Well, he has a book coming out of mm-hmm. um, of past columns, and he was he had more literary references <laughs> in his columns than Naomi did in her poems. There just as many, and mm-hmm. the two of them together was a wonderful reading. It was great, awesome. and uh, uh, it, it was well attended by mm-hmm. people both in the community mm-hmm. and from outside the community who came to the east side for poetry reading. Right. And I, I think awesome. that's pretty significant. Mm-hmm. Right. That's that's it's a to me that's a very, very big deal because just bringing that literary element to the east side of San Antonio, just mm-hmm. bringing it in and basically Carver's my home library. I used to go to Carver when I was a kid. Used to walk across the street from my aunt stayed on Como Street. Used to walk across that field from Second Baptist Church, check out LPs. I'll tell you how dated I am, <laughs> and would walk home. So and I even started my library career at Carver. So Carver has a special place in my heart, and just to have those experiences and just that's a phenomenal program to have. Mm-hmm. And then the people you have coming to these literary workshops is just amazing. And I really appreciate how you put the time and effort to do that. And I'm pretty sure it's, it makes the gym of the East side, the cover branch library. Mm-hmm. And we just need to make more things like that, but not only for the East side, but the South side, the West side also. So we right. need to do more things, but it's, you have to start somewhere. Right. And I think we have to start with the cover and use it as an example to expand that to all our branches and all the sides of the city. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with that. My, um, the library closest to me is uh mission library. Mm-hmm. And I used to go there when I first came here and take my computer and try to work, but I'd love to, uh, maybe with some of the same writers mm-hmm. do something like that at mission or McCreelis, right. uh, mm-hmm. which is another, library that's close to me because I I think people appreciate especially children because when I was young I had a chance to uh, 
uh, go to events after the riots of the 60s mm-hmm. that all of a sudden uh, cities had money for the ghetto, to, <laughs> for writers and mm-hmm. concerts and things to pacify us. But that's when I was exposed to writers coming in, uh, giving readings. Uh, uh, Gwendolyn Brooks, but Oscar Brown Jr., who was a a writer and a singer-performer who was famous during the day. Um, We had uh, Donna Lee, who became Hakeem Adabudi, and so many others. And I had only been exposed to... Uh, Shakespeare and John Keats and people mm-hmm. like that, Wordsworth. And so it was a very different language, and uh, they'd write about uh, plants that I didn't know because we only had dandelions in our <laughs> community, so I didn't know all these natural terms. Mm-hmm. But then to have writers come in and speak our language, you know, mm-hmm. In our idioms, I mean, I, you know, just our cadences and right. such that um, it, it blew me away. And that's what helped me decide I wanted to become a reader and then a writer. Mm-hmm. And so to have events in neighborhoods, one, you hope to attract young people, but mm-hmm. even if parents come, they take that experience home. Right. Right? They take books home. They tell their children about the person mm-hmm. I saw. So someone like Naomi Nye, you know, talking about uh, and a few of the poems she uh, read were poems. One was written by a student in mm-hmm. a school she did a workshop in years and years ago. Oh, wow. And uh, another was about, I believe, a student from the east side because she's done tremendous work in in the schools over Mm -hmm. the years. And so people hear that and, uh, you know, I want you to know about this person. And you get inspired. Right. And so it's it's, uh, trying to advance the cause of literacy in communities that do not have literacy resources that Mm -hmm. other communities might have. Right, and having somebody that, like that representation, seeing somebody that speaks the way you speak and sounds like, oh, that's something I would say, or, you know, my mom talks that way, or my cousin speaks that way. It's it's, Inclusion is uh, very, very important. So, yeah, I can totally relate to that. We had a a situation in town recently in which uh, there was a controversy with the city's poet laureate. Mm. And he used a word in a poem that uh, some objected to, and eventually he uh, was had the position taken from him. And I thought it was a bit uncom- uh, unfortunate just right. for that reason, because the focus was on a word and not the poem. It was a word that's supposed to be derogatory toward black people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wasn't offended, and right. I asked other people and uh, some, for example, uh, uh, business owner who's from Mexico about the word and he said that it can be negative but depends on context because exactly. oftentimes this, this uses a expression of endearment mm-hmm. uh, toward uh, uh, Whoever the uh, the the term is directed at, right. whether it's a black person or whatever, mm-hmm. but 
the poet laureate was kind of unique because he was as much a poet of the people, especially the Chicano community mm-hmm. in San Antonio, as anyone else that I have met or that I know of so far. Mm-hmm. And instead of trying to have a dialogue and overcome the situation so that he might kind of bridge the gap Mm -hmm. between uh, the mainstream San Antonio Mm -hmm. literary community and uh, our ethnic, uh, you know, uh, working class, more traditional Mm -hmm. people who uh, have been in places for years and years and often feel like they're not seen. and not her, uh, it's just a missed opportunity. And so uh, I was sorry that it unfolded that way, but he's still a poet in the city, and uh, having that title or not, I think he'll still continue to work of representing that Mm -hmm. constituency in uh, San Antonio. I have a question, and maybe you can answer for me. Based on that situation you just you just informed us about, do you think that it's maybe a, a, a way of limiting knowledge or limiting access? Because you want to bridge the working people. You want to have them have the same experience as your other crowd. So you want to have them, the imagery, and just to have the dialogue and the, and the experience of that. So when you try to use the vernacular of your people to tell the story, to new people who, don't, who doesn't know about mm-hmm. that. So you think that's sort of censoring him, or do you think it's something just more political with that? We all participate in uh, what you basically call discourse communities. We talk in certain ways. I mean, insurance, uh, people work in insurance or real estate, they talk in ways we're not supposed to understand. Otherwise, right. they wouldn't be able to take our money from us. <laughs> Lawyers, uh, but academics also. Mm-hmm. And so when I was in the academy, academics write for other academics. Academic poets write for other academic mm-hmm. poets. And that's why very often poets celebrate their MFAs. And MFA is Master of Fine Arts. And Fine Arts is elitist. I mean, it's nice. not ghetto barrio. It's not it's, inclusive, right? <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. And, and so we had a situation in which one discourse community, that of the academy, academic poets, objected to something that a, a community poet wrote in a poem. And I think that the disconnect there was that even though we, and I say we because I'm an academic, uh, oftentimes we don't have the capacity to stop and to analyze and and look at things for what they are in that discourse community Mm -hmm. as opposed to uh, casting judgment from our perspectives of being in, you know, white ivy towers uh, looking down uh, because drive by most schools here, they're walled off. Mm -hmm. Very true. They're walled off. And I've gotten into trouble uh, driving onto a campus here. 
that's not good. You know, if yeah. you what's your business, you know, so forth and so mm-hmm. on. And you know, I have a university ID still in my pocket. It's not for school here, but you know, hey, you gotta leave. <laughs> that's true. That's very very true. It's just um, I think we have a long way to go. Definitely. Definitely have a long way to go to get that. And, for some reason, the, the smoke and the bandit just popped in my head. <laughs> Got a long way to go to short time to get there. Watch that <laughs> bandit run. Whew, I'm getting old. Well, I didn't expect the smoke and the bandit reference. reference. You know, <laughs> you never know what to expect on tune in. <laughs> We're full of surprises here. Full of surprises. You never know Definitely. what to get. That's you never so know. But that that's that's real talk. I like how you bridge that. How I never thought about the MFA is. Master of Fine Arts. Right. That's very elitist. It is. And the tone. And the tone is elitist. I don't want everybody to jump on my, my back well, with that. See, it's not necessarily negative unless we Make it prop negative. ourselves up. Right. right. And there are MFAs who do community work. When Natasha Threatway was uh, Port Laureate United States, uh, and she's not the only one, um, she went around to... Uh, uh, poor, I don't know if I want to say illiterate, but uh, pre-literate or mm-hmm. distance communi- distant communities uh, to take books and to take poets, mm-hmm. poetry. And that's what, going back to Robert Frost, what po- poet laureates have often done to mm-hmm. take poetry to the people. And so it's not necessarily negative unless we look at ourselves okay. as being better than. Right. So I was, the other question I was going to ask, don't, I'm being naive, aren't most poets start off as community poets and then they advance to, to academia? Right. Not really. I don't no? think so. Okay. No. Uh, because then, well, it depends on how you define community. For right, example, okay. I often find it difficult to uh, think of, uh, of uh, the suburbs as communities. Mm-hmm. Okay. Even though I've lived in suburbs before, but you walk down the street, no one says good morning to you. Right. And That's true. You don't necessarily have uh, relationships with neighbors unless it's uh, neighborhood watch and things mm-hmm. like yeah. that. Very true. So, so uh, I don't and then oftentimes we grow out of uh, you know school, a teacher so forth and so on. We go to college but mm-hmm. most people in colleges are well how many are first generation and amongst first generation uh, students in a college, if a writer went to college, is where you find those who might have grown out of a community setting mm. as opposed to, you know, my parents were educated. And uh, when I was five, they bought me a gold plate collection of Harry Potter books and stuff <laughs> like that. Right. So another question, is there any difference between – um, I'm trying to find the right word to say this. A community poet, is there any astigmatism between a community poet who just, just um, community, doesn't get the education or doesn't have the MFA? Is there any uh, stigmatism between that and academic poet? 
I, I think it depends. Usually when you become well-known, you become successful, people hated you, love you. Uh, look at music that mm-hmm. uh, even the blues, you know, it's disgusting. That's awful music. Right. <laughs> but once the Beatles and Mick Jagger right. picked it up, uh, mm-hmm. right, you know, okay. it became kind of big time. But in other, other genres and other ways that when the mainstream accepts you, you win an award or some other recognition, then you're okay that people uh, embrace you. But before that, uh, we do this as human beings. We Mm -hmm. look down at each other. Right. And I I hate to admit it, but sometimes I catch myself that, you know. Yes, I think at some point all of us have done things we're not proud of. Yes. And we don't really want to admit it, but then you notice it in yourself and you're like... Uh, it's a little cringy. Yeah, that's very true. That's very, very true. Wow, just that was, was very enlightening because just the whole thing of, of, of the community, bring to the community and from the academic. I never thought or realized that there was such a, um, I know it's a difference, but I know it's such a big difference in that. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. And um, just being a community person, well, I shouldn't have a community person, but being in my community, I sort of respect because I have, I see it, I live it, so I can understand why the community poet he's talking about me, he's talking about the things I've yes. seen, talking about things I've been through. So it, to me, it gives me more resonance mm-hmm. than anything else that I could see, like an academic who may be talking about, like you said, Shakespearean or Frost and things like that. That they're just far, far away right. ideas that I would never experience. So therefore, right. they don't really connect with me. Mm-hmm. So right. I, I really understand that how the, port, the ex-port laureate, how, how you must have tried to fill that fill that void in that. Mm-hmm. Hmm, very interesting. I'm just rambling now. Well, you know, <laughs> this is interesting. I, I never looked up her background, but the uh, – Young poet who read at Biden's inauguration, mm-hmm. uh, what is it, Amanda uh, Gore, uh, Gorman, I believe? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yes. I know very few writers, poets, who like her. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because what? She's writing poetry that people don't read poetry love. Yeah. And so they flock into the Twig or Nowhere Books looking for Amanda Gorman mm-hmm. and her books. Right. And she she gets all this attention and notoriety. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those who, of us who uh, have written formally and we've, you know, we have our credentials mm-hmm. and uh, we've published books that, you know, maybe. 12 people purchase coffee. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we get jealous. Right. right. Without realizing that she's talking to people in ways they can understand, mm-hmm. that they can celebrate. And we, we don't always do that ourselves. For lack of a better word, she's using layman's terms so that everybody can understand in a certain way where an academic poet might say it in a different manner, but she's saying it in a way that we can actually relate to and understand. 
in, in an a easier way, manner. And yes. when you say in a way, that's important because it's, uh, you know, like the tones, the cadence. Cadence, right. uh, yeah, the, the mm-hmm. music. Right. It, it, there's a certain artistry that maybe an academic poet may not take. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it's more. So because music is poetry in motion, I can relate to. I see Tupac Shakur as a poet, an, an excellent poet. But he got a lot of disrespect yes. from people who don't necessarily speak in the manner that he's spoken. Definitely. But when you listen to the actual words, the, the, the basis of what he's saying, it makes perfect sense. I mean, he was indeed a poet to me. I He's one of my favorite poets, I'm just going to say. You know he has a book of poetry. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, but again, because he, most people see him as a thug or, you know, just somebody who was uneducated but in fact he was educated he just spoke in a manner that seemed that what he wasn't so yeah there's a disconnect from an academic to it's like they're seeing it through maybe a broken glass and we're seeing it as like that window pane is like perfection because we speak that way we live the life that he's lived so we understand better yeah. where through the broken glass, you're like, ah, oh, I made through. But hey, we're used to having that broken glass. Somebody threw a baseball <laughs> through my window. It's no big deal, you know. It's it's a different, it's a different, um, I guess, viewpoint. If I can admit to uh, some self prejudice, uh, I always look down at Eminem. Uh, I have a niece, and uh, I lived in Denver, and she loved Eminem. It's like, <laughs> what? All the black rappers, hip hop mm-hmm. is black, and you know I never really listened to them, and I, I'm I predated hip hop anyway. Right. But in the last couple of years, and it was something I heard mm-hmm. of Eminem's, and I had to start streaming Eminem's. Man, <laughs> he's actually yeah. Yeah, and and so. Even though it's not on the page, hip hop is, you know, poetry of the people. Definitely. And people respond to it, they understand it in ways that they can. If, you know, you go into the library, into the poetry section, Mm -hmm. and look at uh, many of the books that are there. So it serves a role, and that's one of the reasons I think why. many urban communities mm-hmm. why spoken word is so important right. whether it's poetry slams or just open mm-hmm. mic spoken word readings and things of right, that nature right. so a very important valuable part of San Antonio's poetry community that doesn't get enough recognition is a strong vibrant spoken word community mm-hmm. and Dan Silent Bob over here just sent me a question Vernacular poetry, community poets contributes to the popularity of hip hop, and you just pretty much answered that question before even was able to answer, <laughs> ask the question. Right. But how do you feel about you said Eminem, and when you take away the music and just listen to the words, I right. think a lot of people are, are poets and artists, mm-hmm. and some are just you know you have to have that beat because you can't pay attention right. to because there's words. no the lyrics are not yeah yes. Very interesting. Well, 
And an important uh, aspect of poetry is rhythm. And so we find rhythm in different ways. And you can write rhythm into a poem from mm-hmm. the words you use, but you, what's wrong with having a rhythmic background because w- what do DJs do, basically? It's, mm-hmm. you know, that beat. Right. And so it becomes uh, music that one can dance to, but right. also that individuals can uh, perform. Uh, when I was uh, at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, I'd see these um, Cajun guys in their big trucks listening to hip hop, and mm. you know, their some of the lyrics would not be, uh, you know, words right. I right. could quote, <laughs> right. But, right. You know, right? But I'm like. <laughs> Detroit, <laughs> Chicago, but not, right. mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a music that, uh, there's a video. I, I taught a course on, on hip-hop once uh, while I was in Denver and showed a video about hip-hop around the world mm-hmm. in Germany and the Middle East and uh, how hip-hop in India, how there are these hip-hop Japan, hip-hop mm-hmm. communities everywhere and part of it is i think that the uh even if you don't understand the language that uh there's something about the music in the language that translates right it captures the attention and and that's why they listen so intently trying to figure out what they're saying i know um right now there seems to be a big boom in um Conjunto music, which is, I mean, it's Mexican. And it's now being accepted a little bit more. Spanish music in general, we're seeing a lot more um, inclusion, which I'm, makes me very happy. Clearly, I am. I'm, I'm a proud Latina. And um, I love to support things like that. But I got to say, sometimes, like, even though I try to support, I'll listen because I'm trying to get their, you know, their views up or their, you know, their whatever statistics or whatever they call it. Um, but I can't always connect to things completely because it's very, very Mexican where I'm kind of on a, in between. I'm in this very gray area of I was born in the United States. My mother was born in the United States. My grandmother was born in Mexico. But... I can't relate to completely Mexican music because I'm not, I was not raised in in Mexico. And I've come to realize that we kind of um, lose ourselves. I I grew up in a border town, not super border, but like right next door. And assimilation was a big thing. We couldn't speak Spanish. You know, it it was more like a, oh, you, you know, you can't do that because... It was, yeah, yeah. You were. It was frowned upon for you to do certain things. And moving away from where I'm from, um, I became more in touch with my roots when I lived in Virginia, <laughs> which makes absolutely no sense. But I wanted to feel a more a, a bigger sense of connection because I was in a place that there was really 
nobody like us. Maybe I mean, it just was, it was culture shock for me completely. Even though I wasn't completely in my culture before, but I learned more about my actual culture living further away because I wanted to feel connected to my roots because I didn't want my children to feel the way that I felt and not understanding certain things. And now moving back to Texas into San Antonio, I've even further connected with my roots and have realized a lot more things about myself through music, through poetry. And um, I I like to write. I, I'm a horrible writer, I will admit. <laughs> but um, I like to write poetry and I have a cadence in my head because I feel like that's, it just, it's more soothing. It's easier to let things out. And I'm really interested in these classes that are going to be happening at Carver. I'm wondering how, do we have to sign up ahead of time? Oh, no, or? no. They're, they're not really classes. They're readings. Although okay. um, the... Uh, Head librarian uh, D.L. Grant has talked about uh, possibility of uh, branching off into workshops, right. oh, okay. which uh, you know just depends on demand uh, okay. if people would participate. There are uh, classes of the parts of the city mm-hmm. at uh, Jim Inc. Uh, right across the street from here okay. uh, that they host. Uh, the owner of Poetic Republic, which is a cafe on South Prasa, mm-hmm. is talking about uh, doing some workshops very much like what you're interested in. But one thing that you said, uh, there's no such thing as a terrible writer except for the writer who doesn't write. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so uh, it, it, all first drafts are all. Awful, so we all write awful stuff. <laughs> it just depends on what we do with it. And once mm-hmm. you write it, it's there for you to work on, to craft, to develop it into something mm-hmm. that you feel proud of, that you feel very comfortable with. So uh, I just encourage you to write and for everyone who has an impulse, who feels an inkling about writing that you uh, that find time and carry scratch paper around with I you. I do. I carry and, tablets uh, with me everywhere. <laughs> a line comes to you or something, mm-hmm. an image, write it down. I appreciate that. And you have a literary professor mm-hmm. who you could just say, hey, I just shoot your email or this. Hey, just check <laughs> it out for me. You know, just, just don't always... Yeah, just there's always resources we could find. Right. Just utilize all those resources, and, and, and that we could we might have something here. <laughs> Attending readings, you meet writers, mm-hmm. and you find someone. When I was young, I found writers who wrote in my language, more or mm-hmm. less. And you find people who do that. You find people who write from. Let's see. You write from a border culture. Mm-hmm. You grew out of a border culture. And, of course, you know, here in this region, um, uh, I can never pronounce their last name correctly. Gloria, uh, has, uh, Borderlands, the book Borderlands, uh, Anza, uh, uh, 
I'm sorry. I, That's okay. I Where wish I had. I, I wish I had it in front of me, but um, uh, she looks at the border as a as a metaphor. Mm-hmm. So the border isn't just a, a geographical place, but there's a culture. Right. It is. Uh, it is. Um, oh, it's uh, Gloria Anzaldúa. Yes, and, and and if you've not read it, you'd find that a very interesting book. And I bet you there's ten copies in. Probably, it. I will have to definitely pick it up. The library <laughs> system. Most definitely. And so when you are part of a border, and I think we're all, uh, we all have, uh, we all have borders in our lives, cultural, right. uh, religious, uh, economic, mm-hmm. so forth and so on, but right. geographic, that uh, you're part of different worlds you have to draw from, you mm-hmm. different languages. So why do uh, so many Latinx writers put Spanish in their poems. Why not English only? It's because that's not their language. Right. Their language is, I don't know if uh, I should say hybrid or it's yes, uh, Spanglish. multiple. It's I multiple. speak Spanglish. <laughs> yeah. And so why wouldn't you write that way? Right, right. Sometimes we want, you know, just straight English, this and that. Mm-hmm. But your culture is not just Right. So that you take advantage of, we write from our experiences. We mm-hmm. write from who we are. We write uh, the voice that is authentic to us. Right. And if that is a voice that speaks in multiple languages, that you, you, you write that way. Yep, that's very true. That's awesome. Wow, this has been a very, very interesting conversation. <laughs> very enjoyable. Very knowledgeable. It's oh. Don't want the end, but <laughs> I just have to mention that again, sir. Thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, and uh, please mention the Prudence L. Curry Writer Series again that you have at the Carver. We have that at uh, I think it's every month. We have a schedule out there for that. Please check it out. The next writer for September, I believe this date's going to be September sixteenth. Daisy says okay. it's going to be Jeffrey Renard Allen. And that will start at 3 p.m. So, Dr. Young, is there anything else you want to add before we sign off? Oh, no. I've talked too much already. You mm-hmm. want to give us your websites and all your social media so we people can get in touch with you? If you look me up, uh, Reggie Scott Young, you'll find more than you want to know about. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Thank you again, sir. We pretty appreciate your time. We appreciate the the contribution you bring to the Carver Library. That's really amazing. We really appreciate that. And um, until next time, thanks for checking out Tuned In. Hey, thanks for listening. And get connected on mysapple.org with Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Snapchat, Pinterest, Flickr, Instagram, and follow Tuned In on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play Music. <laughs>